John chapter 12, continuing where I left off last week, John chapter 12. Last week I looked at verse 37 alone. This week, hopefully, I'll get through verse 41. It's John chapter 12. What's happening in John chapter 12 is we're given the uh, last public ministry of our Lord. It's the last week of our Lord's life while he was on the earth. He's again in Jerusalem, and um, there's a lot of people there. It's a festive, religious festival, so a festive time of year, and there's interaction going on with him and various people. He makes some astounding claims, the big one in verse 31 and 32 of chapter 12 is this. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. So the people ask him some questions. They're either confused uh, and really didn't know or the worst case, they're not confused. They know exactly what he meant, and they utterly disagree with him. Basically, they say, Jesus, you got the Old Testament wrong, okay? The Lord doesn't respond explicitly to them. He calls them to faith in Christ. He calls them to believe in the light while the light is there. Seemingly, those words are, according to some, an, an, a living, well, not those words, But what he did after he spoke in verses 35 and 36, he spoke and departed and was hidden from them. According to some, this is like an acting parable. Jesus says something, believe in the light while the light is with you, and then he leaves. The leaving itself could be an indication that they better believe because he is leaving Then what happens in verses 37 through 50 is John kind of gives a review of the unbelief of the Jews, verse 37, but although he had done so many many signs before them, they did not believe in him. So he states that though he had done many signs, they didn't believe in him. Then he relates that statement, the current unbelief, during the earthly ministry of our Lord, to the Old Testament. And then in verses 42 and 43, he gives us a small uh, glimmer of these rulers who believed, in quotes, in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. Why? For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of of God. Then verses 44 through 50 are like some major claims made by our Lord. We really don't know where he said this. John doesn't tell us. He just, he just uh, asserts these claims by the Lord Jesus. So we're looking at verses 37 through 41. And what we have here in verse 37 is John announcing to us Jewish unbelief in light of many signs done before them. That's the verse I looked at last week, concentrating on these words. He, remember the four points, he 
had done so many signs before them. And so we looked at who he was, or he is. Uh, He's the one who claimed to be one with the Father. He's the one who John said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. He's the one who said, before Abraham was, was born, came into existence, I am. So this is not Moses who did miracles. This is not Elijah and Elisha. There were miracles around all three of those Old Testament figures. None of them ever said, oh, by the way, before Abraham was, I am. None of them ever claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. None none of those miracle workers ever said anything like, I am the resurrection and the life. So the he of verse 37 is very important. It's none other than the incarnate Son of God for us and for our salvation. So then we looked at what he had done. Some of the miracles uh, included the signs included in John's um, gospel. But there's something else that he does here in this section. The section is verses 37 through 41. So last week we noted John's announcement of unbelief in the light of the many signs, in light of the many signs done before them. But note, secondly, that John relates the then contemporary widespread unbelief in our Lord to the Old Testament. So let's read 37 through 41. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. That the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report. This is Isaiah 53.1. We'll be there in a minute. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. So in verse 37, they did not believe. Verse 39, they could not believe because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. That's Isaiah 6. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. So what he does here is he relates his assertion about the widespread unbelief to the Old Testament. You remember last week, if you were here, at some point I mentioned that, you know, you read this and you go, wow, what a failure. He had done all these signs signifying his true identity and mission, and yet they, the bulk of them didn't believe. What an utter failure. Christianity can't be true. Well, John says, hold on. I'm assessing this situation that I witnessed when the Lord Jesus was on the earth, and I can verify that not only did it happen, but the Old Testament predicted that it would happen this way. Both the sufferings and the glory of the Messiah. Both his words spoken and his deeds enacted, and the vast majority of his own kinsmen did not believe in him. John's saying, I am interpreting these recent events in light of what the Old Testament said. Isaiah the prophet spoke about Jesus and these very days that um, he was living in. So 
This morning, we're going to look at verses 38 and 31, where John relates the contemporary widespread unbelief of our Lord to the Old Testament. And I think I have four observations, might be three. But note first the connection between verses 38 and 41 with verse 37. So let me reread 37 through 41, and I'll accentuate where it helps seeing this connection. Verse 37, but although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. So he's going back to the Old Testament. Lord, Isaiah 53, verse 1, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe because, here's Isaiah again, Isaiah said again, he has, this is Isaiah 6, 9 and 10. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said, Isaiah said, Isaiah 6, 9 and 10, when he saw his glory and spoke of him. So we have to go back to Isaiah chapter 6 to see what's going on. So the doing of so many signs before them and the fact that they did not believe in him are both related to what Isaiah the prophet had said many hundreds of years prior. This is very intriguing, isn't it? You think about it. John is relating the current events of his day that just transpired while the Lord was on the earth to the Old Testament, both the words spoken by our Lord, and the arm of the Lord revealed by him, the power of God. Both the report about him through his own lips and from others, and the miracles, the signs. Isaiah said this was going to take place. He would both speak words and act, signs, deeds, and yet the bulk of his kinsmen would not believe. But note second, the three Isaiah texts John references. There are two quotations. I mentioned these, Isaiah 53, 1, and Isaiah 6, 9, and 10, and one allusion. That's to Isaiah 6, 1, in verse 41. These things Isaiah said, Isaiah 6, 9, and 10, when he saw his glory and spoke of him. There's the illusion. An illusion is I'm not quoting a verse, but I am referencing it without quoting it. And you read my words, John 6, uh, John 12, 41. And if you know Isaiah 6, you know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about Isaiah 6, 1. So we have to look at Isaiah 53, Isaiah 6, 8, uh, 9 and 10, and Isaiah 6, 1. Listen to Isaiah 53. Matter of fact, I'm going to uh, read Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. Now, the reason I'm doing that is if you have an English Bible that has headings, they probably show you that Isaiah 53 actually comes in a wider context, including Isaiah 52, 13 and following. As I read these words, they're very familiar. Good readers of John are going to go, oh yeah, this is all over the Gospel of John, the things that Isaiah says here. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. 
He shall be exalted and extolled. Uh, Literally, that word is, I think, better translated. He shall be lifted up and be very high. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle... There's paedo-baptism in the Old Testament. Now, um, better translated, startle. Sprinkle has this meaning back then of wow. So he shall startle many nations. How is he going to do that? Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. 53.1. Who has believed our report. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? By the way, good readers of the Old Testament know that when Isaiah talks about the arm of the Lord, he's borrowing language from Moses, right? The arm of the Lord was revealed when the Lord, thank you, this is my sermon, Sean, Uh, when the Lord rescued, when the Lord saved Israel from Egyptian bondage. The arm of the Lord is a figure of speech for the execution of divine power. So Isaiah is uh, being mosaic here. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground, that is this servant of the Lord. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men. So should we be surprised of the rejection of our Lord during his earthly ministry? No, we should say, ah, God told us this is going to happen through Isaiah. Isaiah spoke about the sufferings and the glory of the Christ who was to come. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised. We did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Now my soul is troubled. Remember when he said that? This is found in the prophets. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. 
for the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. They made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done so violence, no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, to crush him. He's put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So that's the context from which John references or quotes. He quotes Isaiah 53.1. Now, do you think that John, in quoting Isaiah 53.1, is quoting it with kind of blinders on his eyes and just going, I'm just talking about verse 1 of Isaiah 53. It has nothing to do, really, with what goes before or what goes after. What I'm viewing here in this widespread Jewish unbelief only has to do with one verse in Isaiah, Isaiah 53, 1, not the rest of the passage or the entire book or the Old Testament. I don't think, you know, if, if John was here and we said, John, your use of Isaiah 53, 1, do you want us to focus in on the verse by itself or the verse in its context? And he would say, you're a doctor and you ask that dumb question? Of course I want you to read the wider context. You realize that when the New Testament authors um, quote the Old Testament, they're, ready for some technical words, their cognitive peripheral vision, that sounds pretty cool, doesn't it? Their intellectual sight is wider than just the verse or verses they might quote. They're quoting a verse or verses in a context, and they understood the context, and they want the readers to go read the context as well, okay? So they're not ripping verses out of context and putting them in a new context that has nothing to do with the original context. There, what John's doing here is John saying this, Isaiah 53.1, and its surrounding context, or this, Jesus, is that, Isaiah 53.1, and its surrounding context, okay? Jesus is this servant of Yahweh who will both suffer and enter into glory. So who is Isaiah speaking about? He's speaking about Yahweh's servant, God's servant, who shall deal prudently, who shall be exalted and lifted up. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all peoples, Jews and Je Eddie just read that in Ephesians 2, right? Jews and Gentiles into one people of God. 
I'll startle many nations. I'll shut the mouths of kings who end up considering my claims. This one whose report will not be believed and who will reveal the arm of the Lord, who will be despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, rejected by men, not esteemed. He carries the griefs and sorrows of others. He is smitten by God. He is afflicted. He is wounded for others. He is bruised for others. He is chastised for others. He takes the iniquity of others who was oppressed, afflicted, led as a lamb to the slaughter, cut off from the land of the living, did no violence, who had no deceit in his mouth, was bruised or crushed by the Lord, put to grief, made his soul an offering for sin, who shall see his seed, prolong his days, prosper, see the labor of his soul, be satisfied with his labor, justify many, bearing their iniquities, pour out his soul unto death, be numbered with transgressors, bear the sin of many, and then intercede for them. That's who the servant of the Lord is. Okay. So now John's looking at this widespread unbelief, and he says, man, they didn't, they didn't believe in him. But... I got good news. Before you think Jesus was an utter disaster, an utter failure, an utter fraud, he has nothing to do with the Old Testament, John says, hold on. This, these words spoken and these signs enacted, these miracles, and the widespread rejection, God already told us it was going to happen, and it has happened. To whom is Isaiah referring? John tells us he's referring to Jesus who would be incarnate and his ministry. Matter of fact, Paul, no, that's Isaiah 6. We're thinking of Isaiah 53, 1 here. I'm getting ahead of myself. So he is speaking about the future from his vantage point. When the servant comes to earth, the report about him, whether by him or others, will not be heeded, and even though he will reveal the arm of the Lord, those who say the miracles did not trace them back to the power, those who saw the miracles did not trace them back to the power of God in execution. John sees what Isaiah said as taking place during the earthly ministry of our Lord. John sees what Isaiah foretold. Isn't that interesting? Some of you have probably read the book uh, uh, More Than a Carpenter or Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. He's got all the stats, you know. Um, I haven't read it in many, many years, but all the stats, the hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament that terminate on the Lord Jesus that are either quoted or alluded to by the writers of the New Testament. This incarnation, words spoken by and about the Lord, signs signifying divine power in execution and widespread Jewish unbelief and then Gentile inclusion. This is that which the Old Testament said would take place. This is one of the reasons why Christians throughout history have said, uh, we believe scripture is the word of God. One of the arguments, an, an internal argument, is the relationship between the two testaments. How the Old Testament sets up the world for the incarnation, sufferings, and glory of Christ. And how the New Testament, Jesus and the writers of the New Testament, dip back into the Old Testament. And they say, see, I told you. Or 
God already told you this was going to happen. So we have here um, a reason not to be surprised at the widespread unbelief by the Jews in the first century. Matter of fact, is widespread Jewish unbelief new and novel to the first century? No. Remember the generation uh, in the wilderness? What did they see? Moses and God doing many signs through Moses, and yet they're rebuked over and over and over again for not believing. Very sad situation. The prophets pick up this theme of widespread Jewish unbelief. So we shouldn't be surprised by the first century when the people did not believe. Reports from the prophet Isaiah went out, but they were not heeded. The arm of the Lord, language first used of God's power on display during the exodus from Egyptian bondage. The arm of the Lord was revealed, but not heeded. Remember Nicodemus in John chapter 3, I mentioned this last week. He, he argued from the miracles to something unique about Jesus. There, there's no way anybody could do what you do unless God is with him, okay? So he realized, I argue from the effect back to the cause, God is working uh, through the Lord Jesus in a very unique way. But the bulk of the people didn't think that way. What happened in the prophet's day was happening again in the days of the first century. So that's Isaiah 53.1. I could go on longer, but I'm not going to. So he he quotes Isaiah 53.1, and then he quotes a second Isaiah text. Remember, we're looking at the quotations, two of them, and an allusion. He quotes Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. So let's read those verses. In Isaiah 6, 9, and 10, hear these words. And he said, go and tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. Now, John sees these words of Isaiah, by the way, that describe Isaiah's ministry as well, but he sees them as having a kind of a a twofold reference. The first is the historical experience of Isaiah and the Jews under Isaiah's ministry and other prophets, unheeded by the people. But also those historical events during Isaiah's days point forward as well. Isn't that interesting? A prophet's ministry in the Old Testament foreshadows the quintessential prophet's ministry when he came on the earth. The prophets of the Old Testament are typological of the earthly ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. They're both like and unlike it. There's similarities, but dissimilarities. Here, 
what the prophet experienced, widespread unbelief, our Lord also experienced. So John sees these words in Isaiah 6, 9, and 10 as being fulfilled during the earthly ministry of our Lord. Just like he saw the Isaiah 53 passage, so he sees this passage having a twofold reference, historical, Isianic reference, and then a typological, eschatological, Christological reference. Very interesting the way the New Testament uses the Old Testament. So we should not, therefore, be surprised at the widespread unbelief during our Lord's earthly ministry. What was true in Isaiah's day is true in John's day. So if we're back there watching the signs be signifying uh, power, divine power in execution through this God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're going, you know, every once in a while people believe, but compared to the thousands and thousands that saw what he did and heard what he spoke, that number of believers is relatively small. When the Messiah comes, he's going to come with cymbals and drums beating and horses, and he's going to win. He's not going to lose. He seems to be a loser. You know, that's the way this crowd of people in the passage before our passage, it's kind of the way they viewed what Jesus uh, said when he said, and I, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all peoples to myself. They're going, what? We have heard from the law that the Messiah endures forever, and yet he's going to be lifted up. Who is this son of man you're claiming to be? You're a fraud. You have nothing to do with the promises of the Old Testament. Okay, so most of the people thought that. But what John's telling us is they're actually a fulfillment of prophecy. Reading the commentaries on these verses, most of them said, this is a very scary passage. You know, these people did not believe, verse 37, and then verse 40 or whatever it is, could not believe. There's some sort of justice being executed upon that generation that sealed them in their unbelief, at least for a time, because by the way, if we keep reading the New Testament, you know what happens at Pentecost. Thousands believe, and the Christian church started as a small company of Jewish believers and went out from there, you read the book of Acts, it goes all the way to Europe. And then the book of Acts ends, and then the history of the church starts. And the gospel goes forth, and churches are planted, and developed, and grow, and plant other churches all over the face of the earth. Now, we've looked at the two Old Testament quotations. There's also an allusion in John 12:41. It says this. The allusion is to Isaiah 6, 1. These Things, Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. Isaiah said, when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now, this is strange. It does not say Isaiah saw Jesus as if before the incarnation, 
the Son was visible as an incarnate one. There's no incarnation before the incarnation. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. Never before had God assumed human nature. So he he didn't see Jesus. He doesn't say that. He says he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Ah. So let's look at the second part first. He spoke of him. He spoke of him in terms of to be incarnate and what it would be like when he was incarnate. Widespread Jewish unbelief. But he saw his glory. Let's listen to Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 3. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Okay, so saw is the language of a vision. We are not to make these things literal. Uh, This is uh, symbolic language of something glorious, and words cannot contain what he saw, but he says, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Uh, No man has seen God at any time. Why? Because God is immortal, invisible, God only wise. But So this is a revelation of something that's true about God in words not to be taken literally. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, his glory refers to some sort of created manifestation of the dazzling brilliance of Yahweh, which, by the way, fills the whole earth. So the, so the manifestation of divine brilliance fills the whole earth. How does it do that? Well, God's omnipresent, of course, but the earth itself is a creature which manifests its creator. John connects the glory seen by Isaiah with our Lord, which is odd, at least odd, if not extremely strange, but our Lord became flesh in the first century. Right? Right. If he became flesh in this first century, body and soul, how could John, before he became body and soul, flesh in the first century, how could he see his glory if he wasn't a man? He must exist in another form than just man. Remember the language of Paul. Form of God Form of man or form of a servant. Matter of fact, I almost said Paul got that from St. Augustine, but Augustine got that from Paul. Form of God, form of man. Form of God, 
form of a servant. According to the form of God, was our Lord omniscient? Yes. According to the form of a servant or man, was our Lord omniscient? No. According to the form of God, was our Lord omnipresent? Yes. According to the form of servant or man, was our Lord omnipresent? No. He was localized, right? So if Isaiah saw his glory, by the way, his, in context of Isaiah 6.1, is Yahweh, whose glory was not only seen in this temple vision, but it fills the whole earth. John is saying Isaiah believed in the divinity of the servant of Yahweh. There he is in existence prior to his incarnation, exhibiting, revealing his divine glory. In this case, to the prophet. He saw his glory. Very fascinating testimony. So, what John is claiming is this. The glory revealed to Isaiah, the glory of Yahweh, is that which is indicative of the Son of God's true identity as God, and it was such prior to the Incarnation. This is the one of the unique doctrines of the Christian faith. The first is the revealed mystery of the Trinity. The second is, right behind it, the revealed mystery of the Incarnation. Why, Anselm asked, why did God become man? And the answer is, only God could save man this side of the fall into sin. So, There's a sense in which our Lord existed prior to becoming man. Did he exist prior to his incarnation as man? No. The manifestation of divine glory before the Son became flesh was revealed to Isaiah according to Isaiah 6. These things... John says, Isaiah 6, 9, and 10, these things Isaiah said when he saw his glory, Isaiah 6, 1, and spoke of him. Now, do you see, there's another point here. I think I already made it. When we have these uses of, you can sit down, sir. When we have these uses of the Old Testament by the New Testament, they're not just citing one verse. And they don't want us to go back there like this. They're citing verses in context. And so here is the same thing happening in John 12, 41. Uh, I think I said I had four things to note. Note thirdly what John is doing by citing these texts, okay? He's citing and alluding to a third. He's citing two Isaiah texts, 53.1 and Isaiah 6, 9, and 10, and then he alludes to Isaiah 6.1. Notice what he's doing. He is claiming that this, Jesus' teaching, his report, and Jesus' signs, the arm of the Lord revealed, and rejection are, in fact, all contained in the Old Testament. I'm 
beating a dead horse maybe by now, but I keep saying this. That's what he's saying. He's saying, these current events are those things which the prophet said would take place. A big apologetic for the veracity of the claims of our Lord Jesus and his apostles. And then fourth, I want you to note fourth, a seeming difficulty here. It seems on face value that otherwise seeing people and sweethearts were blinded and hardened, right? He says, they're blinded, they're hardened. Now, the way we think about being blinded and hardened is, well, they must have been able to see and their hearts must have been soft or sweet. So God made innocent people to be sinful people. That's what it looks like, doesn't it? It seems uh, on face value in John 12, 37, they did not believe. And then in John 12, 39, they could not believe. See that? That's kind of harsh language, right? As a 21st century Westerner, we read that and we're going, what in the world's going on here? These, These otherwise innocent people were made wicked by God? Is it the case that these people had some sort of divine infusion into their souls, keeping them from believing Jesus' claims. They would have believed Jesus' claims if they didn't have infused into them hardness and blindness. Is that the way we should look at this? Some people are nodding their heads. No. Remember, John wrote his gospel to be read, right? At the end of the gospel, he says, many other signs Jesus did, but I included these, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the servant, uh, Yahweh's servant from the servant oracles of the prophets, primarily Isaiah, and the Son of God, and that believing in him, you might have life eternal. So we're supposed to read the entire gospel, right? So we're, we're in John 12. We're looking at John 12, uh, 38 and, and through 41. We see these weird, strange words from Isaiah about blinding people, about hardening their hearts. Does John's gospel prior to this section in chapter 12 help us with these perplexing words? And the answer is, well, yeah. Does John talk at all about the, about the universal experience of all human beings this side of the fall into sin prior to John chat, chapter 12? The answer is yes. Here's what he says in various places. And the light shines in the darkness. So already we know there's somebody or thing that's called light and somebody or thing or people is called darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. That's John 1.5. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. John 1.10. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. John 1.11. But as many as received him, To them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the, uh, the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but who were born of God. 
Ah, so in order to receive him, somebody has to be born of God. That means something's wrong with us, correct? Way wrong with us, okay? They did not believe. They could not believe. But this could not believe because of the prophecy of Isaiah applies to us as well. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, John 6, 44, right? That's already true of everyone. I think one of the commentators said, even if Isaiah didn't prophesy this, it would have still been the case. <laughs> it's not as this, if here are some sweethearts that really understood Jesus' report about himself and the report that others gave about Jesus, he is the servant of, of, of Isaiah's prophecies, and they traced the effects, the signs, back to their divine origin. These people could see this. They perceived it. They knew it. They received it. But God turned their hearts against him. It's like, that's not, we're giving too much credence to these people's hearts in the first place. You must be born again, right? John 3, 7. Those are uh, in red letters in your Bible. Jesus said that. And then the John 6, 44. So John's own gospel indicates to us that something is dreadfully wrong, not only with those Jews that didn't believe, not only with their souls, but other souls. Okay, And not merely with other souls who aren't listening to my voice, you know, the people out there, the bad people, but your souls and mine. Something's way wrong with all of us. We love the things that we ought not to love. We make things, creatures, people, cars, houses, incomes, into idols, into God, who, to whom or to those things we give our supreme allegiance. And what happens to us? We come undone because we're already undone. So it cannot be that the people John is talking about in John 12 were, prior to hearing from and seeing Jesus' signs, morally neutral with the ability in themselves to see Jesus for who he was. That's not the people he's describing. They weren't sweethearts made sour hearts. Some of you like that word. I think I made it up, sour hearts. If you put sweethearts in your computer, it doesn't show a spelling error. But if you put sour hearts, it shows a spelling error. These weren't sweeties turned sour by some sort of divine work in their souls. These are already sour hearts who got more sour when the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life was before them, reporting about himself in relation to the Old Testament promises and signifying through his miracles his divine identity. They were already sour hearts, and due to their sin, God judged them during their lifetime. Now, that sounds harsh. 
But listen, here's a 19th century Anglican, J.C. Ryle. He says this, The key to the whole difficulty, after all, lies in the answer we are prepared to give to the question, is God just in punishing the sinner? Now, most people would say, well, yeah, God is just in punishing the sinner. Is God just if he punishes a sinner before the last day? The answer is yes. Does God punish sinners before the last day judgment to the degree that they deserve to be punished in this life? No. The true Christian and honest Bible reader, Ryle goes on, will find no difficulty in answering that question in the affirmative. The question is, is God just in punishing the sinner? Once grant that God is just in punishing the ungodly, and there is an end of the problem. God may punish by giving over the obstinate sinner to a reprobate mind as really as by sentencing him to everlasting fire at the last day. Is this a form of divine judgment on the, on the people? Yes. Is it therefore unjust of God? No. Does God owe us justice? Yes. Does God owe us mercy? No. Does God show mercy? If he doesn't, we're in big trouble. He does because of his great mercy, I think Paul says in Ephesians 2 or something like that. Does God execute only judgment and justice on the earth now? No. Is God sovereign over those whom he executes mercy? Yes. Why? Because he owes nobody mercy and he can give it freely. Now, the story isn't as bad as it might sound from these verses. Like, nobody believed in Jesus. John did. The apostles did. Mary, Martha, Lazarus, others, hundreds, probably thousands. Many more multiple thousands didn't. But then when we we read, after he was lifted up from the earth, What did he start doing? He started drawing all kinds of people to himself. Pentecost was kind of like an an afterglow service uh, with reference in connection with the resurrection. He left a blaze of glory behind him, sending his spirit. And these, you know, 2,000, 2,000 were saved, 5,000, whatever it was, in Acts chapter 2, and like I said before, the, the, the Christian church was founded on Jewish apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone. It's not as if nobody believed, a remnant believed. But then afterwards, it started spreading, and primarily the church spread to the Gentile lands. Read the book of Acts, and you'll see that. Well, I'm finished. I have one contemplation, believe it or not, one contemplation. And here it is. Well, maybe two. Though the, I'm hungry, so this will be brief. Though the widespread unbelief in Jesus during his time on earth seems like he was a failure, at least two realities 
argue against that claim. Remember, I've mentioned this last week. I mentioned it this week. You read this, you, you might be thinking, wow, what a loser. Jesus couldn't even get the, you know, the, the, the majority of the people to believe in him. So let me say this again. We're going to think through this. Though the widespread unbelief in Jesus during his time on earth seems like he was a failure, at least two realities argue against that claim. The first one is this. In verses 38 to 41, John links the unbelief in Jesus of the first century with past statements made by God through the prophet Isaiah. That's pretty important. John's saying, don't be surprised, by the way. God, through the prophet, we could say, God, through the prophets, predicted both the coming of the Messiah, the Christ, the servant of the Lord, and God, through the prophets, also predicted the widespread unbelief of Christ's own kinsmen. You remember those those, uh, statements in Luke's gospel twice? In the book of Acts, chapter 26, there might be another one in Acts. In 1 Peter, chapter 1, relating the prophets to predicting the sufferings and the glory of the Messiah. Remember that? That language is in the New Testament several times. The the New Testament, starting with Jesus and then some of the writers and speakers, claim that the Old Testament spoke about sufferings and glory. And you remember the Isaiah 53 passage? Part of the sufferings of Christ is the denial of Christ. They didn't treat him as they ought to have treated him. He was not recognizable or recognized for who he truly was. God become man for us and for our salvation. Some recognized it, but the bulk of the people did not recognize it. So his sufferings shouldn't surprise us. Now, here's what happens with Isaiah 53 with some contemporary Jews, I think it's the majority position among Jewish people, they say Isaiah 53 talks about them, the nation. I found out in some old commentaries that old rabbis said there were two major views here. Either it refers to the nation, there are actually three, but we'll just talk about two. Either it refers to the nation of Israel so, so if you imbibe that, if you take that view and you're a Jewish person, you go, well, of course we're going to be persecuted. Of course we're going to have it hard. Here we are. We are Yahweh's servant like no other nation, and we're going to be despised and rejected among men. We're going to bear the iniquities of others, I guess. The other view was that it referred to the Messiah. Even some ancient Jews held that view. And that's exactly how the New Testament views this. This suffering servant in Isaiah 53 should not surprise us when he comes to the earth. But there's another, there's another argument, another reality that argues against Jesus being an utter failure. And that is this. The church Jesus began during his days among us has spread all over the earth. Right? I mean, we're here. 
Jesus was an utter failure. The Old Testament spoke about his sufferings during the days of his flesh, and then he would enter into glory. The Old Testament spoke about the suffering servant being lifted up, and then after that, nations, kings, bow down to him. Bow, bow down to him. So what has happened, sufferings and then glory, was predicted and it's still, and it's happening. So this argument that Jesus was an utter failure is actually turned upside down by the Bible itself. God predicted this, this, uh, first century large scale unbelief in him. It's, it's one of the reasons, by the way, it's foolishness to the world. Like, what? Jesus is this warrior, savior, figure in the Bible, and when he was on the earth, not many people percentage-wise believed in him? What a loser! Well, what if he came to assume human nature and to experience everything sinners experience in their life from womb to tomb, in order that he would not do in those experiences what all of us have done, sin, in order for him not to sin, but obey the law of God and earn eternal life by virtue of that obedience? And what if he has the power and the will to dispense that great righteousness to others? Ah. That's why we're here, because he does. He is merciful to those who do not deserve mercy. We deserve the opposite. We deserve chastisement. We deserve justice. We deserve the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. That stroke of divine justice is what you deserve and I deserve. But Jesus took it for us. And, and John is telling us, this is all in the Old Testament, by the way. Uh, and so don't think that Jesus was a failure. Matter of fact, think of yourself as a failure. We're all failures. We're not righteous. We're, we're not the good people who go to church. We're the people that recognize that we're not good. And God is good and merciful in Christ Jesus. I'll just state my second observation or contemplation. Witnessing Jesus' signs did not assure seeing Jesus for who he is and what he came to do. They saw a lot of signs. It's more than seeing. You can't just see effects and be saved. You have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We pray your blessings on it for everyone hearing my voice today, and we ask that you give us large hearts in response as we sing. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.